Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of roleplaying games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 53, Mental Health and Roleplaying Games. Before we get this week's tour going, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for the kind words and well wishes after our anniversary show last week. I'm never quite sure how folks are going to respond to what I put out there, but to hear the kind words was definitely an ego booster, and I thank you for it. But that was last week. It's time to move on and start a new year of the show. This week is definitely a different style of show than what we usually do. And at this point, I have to welcome in folks who don't usually listen to this show because I threw out a wider net than I usually do. And I reached out to folks interested in shows about mental health and well-being for this episode. And I know that a number of those folks might not typically be interested in tabletop role-playing games or shows about them. And before we go any further, I do feel the obligation to point out that today's subject matter might be a trigger for some listeners, so if you're concerned about that, you might want to shut us off right now and come back next week when we get back to my usual level of silliness. Believe me, I won't be offended. So why would I get into mental health and well-being on a podcast about role-playing games? The truth is, is if you've been paying attention to the news for the past little while, it seems we're seeing a lot of stories about suicide or about people with mental health issues being portrayed in a negative manner, or frankly, because the world feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket from time to time. And for those who joined the show believing I wouldn't be using profanity, I do apologize, but I think the use in this case was appropriate to make my point. I will not be using any other profanity during this program which for our regular listeners is probably going to be a nice change of pace. For me, mental health is not only my profession, because my full-time day job is working in the mental health field, but it's also personal to me, as I myself have been diagnosed with a mental health condition and I take prescribed medications to help me deal with it. And look, I'm not embarrassed to admit that I take meds to help with my mental health, but I'll get back to that in a minute. The statistics don't lie. A very large majority of the adult population has been diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. Oh, and let's be clear about something. Mental illness doesn't just mean things like schizophrenia. ADHD is also considered a mental illness, according to the DSM, which is the golden tome of mental health professionals. And trust me, the DSM is loaded with various different diagnosis types, which would take a month's worth of episodes to cover, so I'm not even going to try. I just wanted to make sure we understand that mental illness comes in all shapes, sizes, and forms, so we're working from the same place as we move forward. Now, I said a minute ago that the numbers don't lie. Let's take a look at a few of them. In America, John Hopkins reports that 26% of adults 18 and older deal with some sort of mental illness. That's one out of every four, to simplify. NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, reported in 2020 that 21% of adults 18 and older dealt with some sort of mental illness, which equates to roughly one out of every five. Their numbers went one step further, noting that the total number of American adults was 52.9 million. Also, being very aware that we've got listeners around the world, I did some deep diving to get some numbers. According to mind.org.uk, one in four UK adults deal with a mental illness, and in any given week, one in six either are or can be diagnosed. And for the rest of Europe, OECD and the European Union did a study in 2018 where they reported that one in six adults deal with a mental illness. Here's one more thing to chew on while we're getting into the nitty-gritty reality of this situation. None of these numbers take kids into account. 
Look, I know the numbers can feel scary or overwhelming, but I can tell you this. There are resources available to you if you've noticed things you feel you need to address. One of the big questions that get asked when these numbers come out is usually, how did we get here? I think what most folks mean when they say that is, how do we have so many people needing so much help, and how many more are out there that need help and aren't getting it? Again, this isn't a podcast where we break down the causes of mental illness and discuss all the various treatments, though there are a ton of those types of shows out there if you're interested. And for the record, I have to note that I am not a licensed therapist or psychiatrist. What I am is someone who's worked in the mental health field for about a dozen years, with another five years spent working in the American public school system with kids with special education needs and diagnoses. So any advice or suggestions I give you come strictly from my own experiences, and I'm going to give you my opinions on some things. Now, I'll admit up front that some of you, including many in the field, might disagree with me, and of course, you've got every right to do so. With those qualifiers out of the way, let's keep rolling on. Okay, so I have some thoughts about how we got where we are. First off, for way too long, mental illness was, and in some ways still is, something we just don't talk about. How many times have you heard somebody say one of these things? It's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just being dramatic. You're just looking for attention. You should just shake it off. You need to just cheer up. Now, I'm not going to say that those phrases always come from someone who doesn't care, but they frequently come from people who either don't understand mental illness or don't want to face the possibility. And I believe a lot of that comes from the way mental illness has been portrayed over the years. I mean, think back to some of the movies and television shows you've watched over the years. How many of them had bad guys who were deemed crazy or had some sort of mental illness? And by the way, mental illnesses such as schizophrenia are often way misrepresented in those movies, which doesn't help matters much. So when you consider the amount of television most of us watch, and as a member of Generation X, I've watched a ton of television over the years, there's no wonder so many of us got the wrong messages growing up. Taking that into account, the generations before us got even less about mental illness than we did growing up. They were definitely told there wasn't anything wrong, and they were just not supposed to acknowledge it. In fact, it wasn't all that long ago in America that people with mental illness could just be sent to a sanitarium, never to be seen or heard from again. Trust me, if you read some of the materials about the conditions of sanitariums and other mental health facilities before about 1980 or so, it'll scare you more than the scariest horror movie out there. Take all of those images and realities and roll them into a ball together, and you've got a base for why things seem to be the way they are regarding mental health and the treatment of mental health. And that's because mental health tends to be one of the worst funded items on any government's funding list. Again, I can't speak for any other nation other than the U.S., but I can give you a few more numbers. According to Statista.com, from 1986 to 2020, the U.S. spent about $238 billion to address mental illness. While that sounds like a lot, it breaks down to about $7 billion a year. For a comparison, between January 1st of 2019 and December 31st of 2020, candidates running for President of the United States spent about $4.1 billion. To me, when you combine all of this, it's easy to understand why some people feel hopeless when they're depressed or feeling that something's wrong. So after bringing down the entire vibe of this show, let me bring it back up. The first thing I have to do is point out that you're not alone. Let me say this again so that we're clear. You are not alone. 
I mentioned NAMI a minute ago when I was laying out numbers. If you're looking for help, start there. Their website is nami.org. There are also organizations and companies all over the place that are trained and skilled at working with you to help you find ways to not only live with your situation, but help you find ways to manage it. Again, I can't speak for our friends outside of the U.S., but I know that in the U.S., many local and county governments have phone numbers and or websites you can access to find the services available to you. You can also check the phone book for therapists or sites that provide services. Okay, kids, there used to be this big book of phone numbers we all got, and we called it the Yellow Pages. Businesses were organized alphabetically by the type of business they were, and their numbers would just be in there. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Old man joke. You can also do a Google search for services available in your area. And if you're not feeling like doing any of those, DM me on social media or send me an email and I will walk you through the process. Heck, if all you need to do is talk to somebody, I will gladly do that too. All right, so I think I've been Debbie Downer for long enough. Let's combine our look with mental health with the reason I do this show in the first place, role-playing games. I know what you might be thinking. How can playing a character in a game help with mental health? Look, I can give you my opinion, and I will in a bit, but why don't I start with some actual cases to make my point? James Cannell wrote an article for the Leicester Press in the UK that a Dr. Rafael Bacamazzo, quote, the clinical director of nonprofit charity Take This, has been using Dungeons & Dragons to help struggling teens use social skills, end quote. Yeah, I know, I'm talking about teens with social skills, but just stick with me on this. Continuing in the article, Cannell reports, quote, Mechanical engineer student Will Seal is a regular player of Dungeons & Dragons. He said, The game gives you a kind of escapism that makes it a lot easier to talk to people. Will struggles with social interactions and admitted, I've never been a social extrovert. I'm even bordering on social anxiety. But when playing the game, Will comes alive with charisma. He says, It's a lot easier to talk to people because in the moment of the game, it's not you talking. It's the character you're playing. Will also said, you tend to be immersed in what you're doing, so you tend to forget anything that was bothering you before the game, end quote. On March 2nd, 2022, a trio of researchers, Daniel Lucas Arenas, Ana Vidiani, and Renata Brasil Arajo, published the review article, Therapeutic Use of Role-Playing Game in Mental Health, a Scoping Review. In it, they researched 4,069 studies. What they found was that overall, role-playing games were a positive tool to utilize in psychotherapy. They did note, however, that they'd like to see, quote, more empirical and well-designed studies on the application of role-playing games in mental health, end quote. Next up is an interview and article from Reina Bombo entitled Gateway, How Entering the World of TTRPGs Impact Mental Health. It was released on September 17, 2018. In the article, the reporter interviews three tabletop role players, aged 26, 26, and 27, and discusses how playing role-playing games impacts their mental health. When asked the question, can you tell us about any positive changes you've noticed in your mental health since you began playing tabletop role-playing games, LJ said the following, quote, there are definitely some positive changes in my mental state since I started playing tabletop role-playing games. When things get bad, sometimes you try to find something to get you through another day. The thought that you get to play D&D &D or any other tabletop role-playing game with friends will be the thing that will help, end quote. Kat gave this answer, and I'm picking up towards the end of her comment. Quote, since I started playing D&D, &D, I've become more positive. Bad things don't affect me as much, or at least it's easier for me to shrug them off. 
great storytelling, does amazing things, and keeps me from sinking into negative thoughts that would have kicked me down and sat on me a few months ago, end quote. Dom had an interesting response when asked about his favorite character to play. He said, quote, Michael, my half-orc fighter, was made while I was feeling the following. First, I wasn't confident about my abilities in playing D&D. Second, I wanted to take him seriously because I wanted to be at par with the people I was playing with. And finally, I didn't want them to think I was bad at D&D. So he inherited that sense of self-doubt. But as his story progresses, this self-doubt is becoming more about how his character is rather than my feelings. End quote. The next question in the article was revealing. How has role-playing characters helped you discover facets of yourself that you don't normally get to explore in real life? Do you find your character's traits carrying over into real life? And what are the effects? Dom answered thusly, quote, Playing D&D is a nice outlet for me because I get to display a more enthusiastic, friendly side of me. I really like making people laugh, but I feel that I have a certain sense of humor that doesn't appeal well with others. I tend to bring it out more at the table than at work because I trust the people I play D&D with. End quote. LJ added, quote, I made one specifically to explore all that chaotic energy I harbor inside of me. End quote. When asked about forming relationships with fellow players, Kat had this comment, quote, My groups usually debrief and hang out after games. We players check in on each other, talk about what happened, and see how we as people feel. I've had some pretty great conversations about how something affected us or our characters. If the effect is negative, we try to come up with action plans to make it better, or at least to address it either in-game or as friends. End quote. Overall, all three players note that playing role-playing games has been positive for their overall mental health, but they urge people who are interested in playing to understand that it might take some time to find the right group of players for their needs. Later in the article, the author lays out some of the potential mental health benefits of playing D&D. Among those are improved social skills with peers, increased self-esteem and self-confidence, ability to express yourself and your needs assertively, improved impulse control and practice with turn-taking, stronger creative thinking and problem-solving skills. Thus, overall, the author strongly recommends utilizing Dungeons & Dragons as a therapy tool. Okay, so I've looked at a few different published studies or reports about the practice, and to be honest, I've got a dozen more I could pick pieces out of and use in this show. But they'd all be saying basically the same things I've said to this point. And even though I've got the time, I'd like to make some points that haven't already been made. That means I need to get personal, and I need to detail some of the things I've done with role-playing games in a therapeutic setting. I mentioned earlier that I spent five years working with kids with special education needs. In the U.S., that means I worked with kids with IEPs, or Individual Education Plans. The TLDR of an IEP is this. If a student has special educational needs due to any number of reasons, be they developmental delays or issues with learning material, they're in what have been called special education classes. There's a lot more to it than this, but for my purposes today, that'll work. And, and I know it's not a catch-all on my phraseology, but I'm, I'm playing keep it simple. The final year I worked in a special education classroom, myself and another paraprofessional, which was our title, realized we had a large group of students in grades six through eight who were very much interested in various types of gaming. And with the permission of both our school and the parents of the students, we started a game group for our school. We made sure that any students who wanted to be a part of it were allowed, and we actually encouraged that because one of the fundamental purposes of the group was to get our kiddos, who weren't the best in social settings or with interpersonal interactions, working with other students in their age range to both solve problems and improve their social skills. Since there were two of us, 
we ran two rather large games of Dungeons & Dragons with different campaign settings and different storylines. Overall, I could speak with certainty that our group was a benefit to the students who participated. I saw kids who were very rarely social with other students start conversations in character about what needed to be done to solve the issue that was presented to them. I also saw students who demonstrated impulse control issues again and again, who demonstrated excellent impulse control in the game. When presented with a situation that could have gone bad if violence had broken out, some of these kids demonstrated strong restraint, working with their peers to find a diplomatic solution to the issues. And we worked with a wide range of students, from those considered to be oppositional defiant all the way to students on various ranges of the autism spectrum. All of the kids participated in every session and for the most part participated appropriately both in the game and with their fellow players. So, for a small sample, I would argue that role-playing games are very appropriate as a tool for working with students with social skill issues, among other things. Of course, most of the literature I've read and used for today's episode have addressed adults. I can get into that from a personal perspective as well, and I'll use myself as an example of this. I have a mental health diagnosis of bipolar. For those who don't know what that means, it's basically what most folks would have once called manic-depressive. In other words, I experience the highest of highs during which I feel motivated to do everything I can find to do. On the other end of that, I can experience the lowest of lows during which I don't want to see anybody or do anything. And frankly, that's on a good day. At worst, well, I mean, I've never engaged in self-harming behaviors, but my thoughts have been known to get to some pretty deep, dark places. And I'll leave it at that because those thoughts are mine and I'm going to keep it that way. Or at least until my next session with my therapist. On top of that, I experienced periods of extreme anxiety during which I've actually had bad panic attacks that have basically paralyzed me in that I can't do anything and the only thing I'm thinking about is how messed up things are and how I can't take it. Now, I don't say that to elicit any sort of sympathy from anybody because believe me, I'm doing pretty darn good right now. I'll grant you that some of that is due to the fact that I finally hooked up with a good therapist and that therapist seems to have figured out the right combination of medications for me so that I can take them to help manage my symptoms. And yes, I can and must also give a large chunk of credit to my family because all of them just seem to know when things are a bit off and they instinctively seem to know what I need to make things start to feel better. But another big chunk of the credit goes to role-playing games. For me, role-playing games are a chance to get out of my own head for a while. When I'm playing, I'm in the mindset of the character I'm playing, and it gives me the opportunity to forget about my issues for a while and instead be in the mind of someone else. They don't have the issues I have or the responsibilities that I have, so I get to deal with an entirely different person, and in dealing with that, I can also help myself. Now, for the better part of the past couple of years, I've been the DM far more than I've been playing, but I've been able to work that out for myself as well. Same basic principles, but instead of one character, I'm responsible for telling an entire story. And that level of responsibility forces me to get out of my own head and into the mindset of a writer or a director. In other words, I have to be more concerned with what the background actors in our little production are doing, as well as telling enough of the story on my own to help my group be able to tell the story the way they want to tell it. I'll be the first to admit that sometimes my mental health gets to me, and I've shown up on game night with nothing prepared. Or I get there fully prepped and ready to go and I'm just not feeling it. On those nights, I just try to grip my teeth and march on because I feel that obligation to my group to bring them what I promised. 
And some of the best gaming my group has ever done has happened on those nights. Somehow they just seem to know when I'm a little off in my game and it causes them to up their own games and take it to a totally different level. That being said, we've had sessions that were bowling shoe ugly. Fortunately, I game with folks that are able to shake that sort of stuff off and move on. I have issues doing that sometimes, but they don't, typically. Now, with everything I've said about the benefits of role-playing games as mental health therapy, there is one instance where I would caution against it. And again, this is my opinion. The reminder again that I'm not a licensed therapist, so this is all opinion based on years of fieldwork and even more years of role-playing games. If somebody is having issues with recognizing what is and isn't real, I would strongly advise against using role-playing games with them. Simply put, if someone is experiencing those types of issues, presenting another situation that isn't actually real could cause you more problems than what it was expected to help address. With that exception, though, I strongly advocate for the usage of role-playing games for helping with mental health. So if you're not normally a role player, dig into the archives of this show and we'll give you a variety of ideas for things to try. And if you're a regular player, well, I'd say you're doing something to help yourself from a mental health well-being stance. And with that, we're at the end of today's show. I usually say tour in that spot, but today's show was a bit different than usual. I also know we're shorter than what I usually shoot for, but I was trying to be careful with how much information I was presenting and how many scenarios I was getting into. Overall, I think we can agree that that was probably for the best. I think in the spirit of not cluttering up the wrap-up today, in lieu of my usual promotions, I'm just going to say this. If you or someone you know is experiencing mental health issues or are expressing feelings that they might hurt themselves or somebody else, please reach out for professional help. If you don't know those numbers in your area, do a Google search after the show. Or if you're in the moment, you can call your local police department and ask them for the numbers, as most departments keep them handy. The most important thing I can say that you can do to help somebody is this. Don't ignore them. Don't blow off what they're saying or what you're hearing. Be there for them in the moment and listen to what they tell you. Then help them take the actions they need to get the help they need. With that, we're going to bring this week's show to a close. Next week, we'll be back to our normal shenanigans, and I'm sure I'll tell more dad jokes and make more bad Monty Python references. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history. 